This is Didi Yazzie Devine, and I'm the CEO of Native American Connections, and we're a, a nonprofit organization that provides uh, uh, behavioral and medical health care, um, all types of housing from uh, shelter, transitional, uh, permanent supportive housing for homeless, and affordable for families. And we're also a community development organization. For example, we uh, operate the Phoenix Indian School Visitor Center where we tell the story of the 100-year-old uh, boarding school. So those are an example of uh, the lines of business that we have. I'm Joe Keeper, and I work on our real estate development at Native American Connections and kind of do whatever Dee Dee tells me to do. <laughs> Nice. Well, I appreciate both of you guys for joining us. Um, so everybody's been a little bit um, briefed on what the Dunlap Point property looks like. Will you guys start by introducing the development? Sure. Well, Dunlap Point is um, a campus approach uh, to solving the behavioral health and permanent supportive housing needs for chronically homeless individuals in the city of Phoenix with a preference for Native American veterans. It is a five acre site located along a, a beautiful mountain preserve in central Phoenix. And it was kind of um, an imagination to holistically bring together behavioral health and other supportive services um, to those individuals experiencing drug or alcohol addiction and also in the need um, of permanent supportive housing. So like I said, it's a campus approach with two separate and distinct services that are being provided on the site. And Dunlap Point, uh, the subject of this podcast, I guess, um, is 54 units of uh, housing that supports those chronically homeless individuals. And so when you say a campus approach, does that just mean that there's multiple buildings or I noticed online it looked like this was the second piece of a two part project for supportive housing? Exactly. Um, it is. There's multiple buildings, um, but it is a centrally planned campus. Like I said, it's a five acre site mm -hmm. and two of the two of the buildings on the east portion of the property that abut the mountain preserve are is a 24-7 uh, um, licensed drug and alcohol residential uh, treatment center that mm -hmm. will serve up to 48 individuals that are essentially receiving support services and, and behavioral health services for their drug and alcohol addiction. And um, that's, real, that's real where the heavy part of the work gets done. Uh, but it also serves as, a, as an intake and um, and uh, an opportunity for us to house some of those clients in one of Native American Connections, many supportive housing communities that we operate within Central Phoenix. Dunlap Point is another one of those supportive housing facilities and the newest uh, community that we will be opening. Um, and again, it, it's sort of a holistic approach where we can provide those behavioral health services but also provide uh, supportive housing services on the same campus as well. And that building is a separate building. The housing is a separate building that will open here in January, 2021. 
Okay, and so um, I'm not sure if you already said it, but in total, what was the project's cost for the entire development? Yeah, well, the, the two campus, the two uh, programs combined over the entire campus, uh, that is approximately a $24 million redevelopment in, of, of the entire campus with approximately $12 million per phase. Uh, that includes all of our land uh, costs, architectural fees, building permit fees, and hard construction costs, and all the other costs that go into real estate development. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Okay, well, I, I the project sounds amazing, and I want to get into some of the supportive services and um, the uniqueness, I guess, for Native American connections a little bit later in the interview, um, but I know our audience is less familiar with financing these types of developments. So I want to kind of break down so, sort of the pre-development steps. So was the idea naturally to use these buildings in this land for supportive housing um, or how did the partnership, you know, arrive at using using the buildings this way? Well, I'll, ju I'll just start with that. Uh, we, we have uh, a very similar campus um, already in the central core of Phoenix. Um, it's called the Patina Wellness Center. And so we had already um, had experience with developing a campus style project uh, with uh, both behavioral health wellness center as well as housing. Now the housing on the other site that we're talking about is not uh, permanent supportive housing for homeless. It was actually affordable housing for very low income families. But we, we had experience with that. Um, we were uh, expanding our behavioral health uh, program, our residential treatment beds. And when we uh, did have the opportunity to acquire this site, it's actually quite a beautiful site on two sides surrounded by the Phoenix Mountain Preserve. Um, the five acres was a little bit uh, too large just for the treatment center and we were um, wanting to also expand uh, because of the number of homeless that are in the, you know, in, in Maricopa County and in the pit count. The homeless numbers are going up and particularly the Native American homeless are uh, disproportional and and we've been part of ending vet, veteran homelessness that we decided to um, uh, combine the two campuses um, and thought it would be a, a good opportunity to meet those two community needs uh, with a site that was that size. Right, right. So the, just the opportunity was there. I guess this the treatment center came first and you realized you had the excess land. So um, naturally, since it was work you're already involved in, the response would be to use it for housing. That makes sense. Yeah, well, um, actually, okay. Jasmine, let me add, because it, it, I don't think it was necessarily that we had the excess land. We, we purposefully planned the campus from day one. Um, and the approach we took, like Edie said, was we, we had already had a, we already have and operate a very successful uh, campus that, that targets families on the supportive services side, but like Didi said, there's such a big need for supportive housing for chronically homeless individuals. It just seemed like a logical step for us to make that interaction between the two programs on this site. Um, I when whenever we find a piece of 
real estate that we want to um, try to redevelop or work with, you know, we look at a lot of different factors from the neighborhood uh, to the zoning to the amenities. We, we also have to pay special attention to the financing opportunities that are available. And fortunately, we have a great partner with the city of Phoenix, and they were actually issuing a request for proposals at the time we were looking at the site for a new project that would contain project-based vouchers uh, with a majority of them including bash vouchers which as your audience and you're well aware is very critical for our ability to provide quality supportive housing for our homeless vets gotcha and so i know also arizona is the only state in the u.s that has a straight um set aside like an outright set aside of their tax credits for housing for veterans specifically so project-based bash was part of the financing and i read uh, just in my research of the project that tax credits um, supported the development, but what other major sources of financing were used for this property? Dee uh, Dee, would you like me to go? Yeah, you go and I'll fill in the gaps. Okay. So, I mean, yeah, the VASH vouchers and the other project-based vouchers that we received really anchored the long-term sustainability and operations of the property. Um, which, which permitted us to really work with a capital stack that leveraged the low-income housing tax credits uh, that are allocated through the Arizona Department of Housing. And we were able to also work with the Arizona Department of Housing on a national housing trust fund loan because they're, 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 those funds are geared towards homeless uh, communities and specifically veteran homeless communities here in Arizona. So we were able to work with um, the Arizona Department of Housing on leveraging the low-income housing tax credit, uh, their, their lending of national housing trust fund dollars, in addition to a permanent loan um, that is being financed through LISC, uh, Local Initiative Support Corporation. And we have one last piece of, of uh, leverage financing that went into the deal, and that is uh, a grant through the Federal Home Loan Bank of San Francisco under the Affordable Housing Program. Um, but Native American Connections, um, we really understand, you know, the quality and the level of finishes and detail that it takes to make these communities successful. So we go a little bit above and beyond when it comes to furnishing the units and, you know, um, putting in safety features and uh, neighborhood amenities, amenities that our residents uh, will, will enjoy and also utilize. So we also worked actively with private foundations like the Home Depot Foundation, um, like Wells Fargo Foundation, um, and some other local um, foundations like PetSmart Foundation, for example, to help us round out the rest of the capital stack so we really have a property that once it's open is something that we're, you know, we're not only proud to operate, but I think our neighbors and our partners um, are glad that we're there as well. Right. Then Didi, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? No, that's pretty comprehensive. I mean, I would just say, for example, you heard him say PetSmart and, you, you know, it's come to our, uh, you know, that we've learned over the years that, 
you know, the, those uh, pets, whether they're emotional support or whether they're a pet, you know, we really like to have them, you know, uh, they're important. So having a, a dog park and, you know, the, the supplies that they need to really take care of their pets in a healthy and humane way. So, you know, I, I just think that's a really good example of how when we're, when we're looking at a project, we actually have the development cost, but we're also looking at the operation of the property and how we can maintain it um, in the condition that we want to and that the neighborhood wants and that the tenant wants, the resident wants. But we also are looking at our service budget because we feel like there's um, the way you construct the property and the detail that we do, the way we operate the property, but it's really the services that engage the people that help our residents really be have the highest quality life they can have. And so all three of those uh, kind of budgets are important on the front side and then how we look at not just building the building, how we're going to operate it and how we're going to serve the people that are there. Right, right. Not just thinking about those hard development costs or soft development costs, but also exactly. maintaining the, the lifetime of the project. So I know our audience will be somewhat familiar with um, the Housing Trust Fund and uh, LIHTC, um or the tax credit program. Are uh, the other financing sources you mentioned, are they for the most part competitive applications? Yeah, the um, affordable housing program, the HP grant or loan, um, whichever we want to classify it, that is a competitive application process through the federal home loan bank system. Um, no matter where your audience is in the country, uh, provided they're, they get familiar with um, some of the federal home loan bank member banks, because it's a cooperative system, those are competitive applications that are available to you know, I would say probably 90, 95% of most affordable housing initiatives, be it rental or home ownership in the country. Um, we, we've got, we're fortunate to work with the Federal Home Loan Bank of San Francisco, and they've been a supporter of many of Native American Connections affordable housing communities through the years. And um, we really, that that is the piece that lets us, um, frankly, um, fill the gap on some of the hard construction-related items that we otherwise will be having to pay out of pocket as a developer um, or have to cut back on some of the level of finishes that we need and that we know we need to operate the building from a long-term perspective. Gotcha. That is something that's come up a bit in this series is just like, you know, communities set their parameters for, you know, what they require of developments. And you obviously want to make sure you're building affordable housing within those priorities and guidelines and everything. But we have to have the financing in place to be able to support those type of projects and make sure they mesh well with the community and also they support the lifetime of the project. So, I mean, I, I definitely understand where you're coming from there. And just so I'm clear as well, and I know this is not a question that necessarily um, was discussed beforehand, but is anything about this property and the community that it serves being like a Native American community, um, is it in anything in the financing process different or am I confused, I guess, by that? I wouldn't say from the financing perspective, no, but I would have to say from an operational um, and service delivery standpoint, definitely yes. Uh, 
Didi will, I know she'll add to this, but it's much more of a, we're much more of a culturally based program um, in that regard. And, and it's, it's not just for, you know, Native Americans, of course, um, it's for anyone that's income eligible, but it's definitely a different feel when it comes to the creation of community. Mm -hmm. And so, so, so on the housing development side, um, uh, there, there, there are opportunities and there are some communities across the country where tribes are investing in affordable housing off-reservation. I think Minneapolis is a really good example, Duluth, Minnesota, um, where tribes are actually investing into different types of um, affordable housing. and then you actually have tribal dollars in the, in the development where you can allocate some of your units for tribal members. But um, we're not using any of those tribal dollars. Uh, not that we haven't tried, but in Arizona, most there's such a housing shortage in all our tribal communities that most tribes are really uh, not investing a lot of their housing dollars off reservation. For example, like Navajo Nation housing really became a, key issue with COVID in terms of their high infection rates because of overcrowded, substandard, and lack of housing. And they've at one time identified a 30,000 unit housing gap and just that tri one tribal community. So you're not seeing a lot of tribal investment off reservation. Um, and But the, the reverse of that is that all the funds that we use are probably all eligible to tribes. And uh, we work the other direction on um, encouraging tribes to leverage some of their tribal-specific dollars with some of these other sources of funding that Joe mentioned that we utilize. So, um, so, and then, then let me just say on the behavioral health side, not in terms of the financing of the project, but um, on the healthcare side for the residential treatment center, we actually contract with Indian Health Service and we contract directly with tribes all throughout the United States for residential treatment. So um, al although there aren't tribal specific dollars in the actual construction of the treatment center, uh, there are a lot of tribal dollars that are speci specific to tribal members in the operations of that site, as well as, as Joe said, uh, a lot of the um, the philosophy, the clinical philosophy that we use in recovery, it's a whole person, whole community wellness model. And we do have um, sweat lodges and we have a beautiful talking circle room, which is a ceremonial room that we use for healing historical trauma. And we have um, employed with us uh, traditional healers, Native American traditional healers from Navajo Nation and from Tohono Nation. So we really uh, combine, uh, because it is a licensed medical facility, we combine, you know, Western medicine, best practices in, in, um, in substance use uh, disorder treatment, but we also combine thousand-year-old traditional healing practices that have demonstrated um, treating more of the on things that are underneath the physical addiction, the historical trauma, the abuse, and some of the other things. So I hope that wasn't too long of an answer, but... 
No, a couple of points I want to just make sure I'm clear on and also make sure our audience is clear on, though. Um, starting with the supportive services, obviously these services are tailored specifically to the communities that you serve. Um, and you guys have experience with doing this this type of development because of the other property you guys operate in Arizona. Um, but do you think it's something that I guess more communities should be considering or is this something that they already do consider? So on the service side, on the housing side, I was more talking about the treatment center side, services on the housing side. For one thing, again, we're very thoughtful in our architectural design. Matter of fact, when we built our first housing first homeless uh, project, we did about 100 interviews and our architect actually sat with our uh, future residents and some of our past residents. Many of our staff are in recovery as well or have been in homeless or been involved in the criminal justice system, but they actually sat with our staff and potential residents and designed the project um, from a cultural value, from a safe, uh, safe supportive service value. You know, really what did the tenants want to see not only in the physical construction, but how it would feel and how it would operate and how they would feel safe and how they would be welcome and how would they would think of it as their home and not just an apartment complex. So we have, most of our sites have, or I think they all do, that we have um, a donation center and we have a community kitchen and we have uh, gathering places, uh, you know, conference centers and rooms where they have, where they plan, we organize some of the support service groups and they organize a lot of the support service groups, so they create their own. Um, and so uh, on, on the housing side, I would think that our, our services are very much driven by the residents themselves and what they determine they need. Um, a lot of times it's around um, access to healthy food and learning how to cook and utilize just because they have this nice kitchen um, in their apartment doesn't mean they still don't go to Circle K and buy, you know, a dollar hot dog. So um, it's really kind of evolution of people learning how to um, access their primary care provider, switching their health care from one of using the emergency room to one of uh, proactively having a relationship with a primary care physician and getting their health care done, you know, um, and their health care needs met in that way. Um, a lot around food. We have um, a hot box in all of our communities, and that's a, that's a room in which um, as they bring things into their unit, it goes into there and it heats up to 140 degrees, kills all bed bugs and other uh, you know, lice, scabies, all those kind of things, and we have almost no, zero outbreaks of any kind of those uh, troublesome things that you might see in, in other homeless communities, and they they welcome that, and they, you know, maybe they go dumpster diving, or they get something from a Goodwill or something, they bring it right there, and leave it with the staff, it goes into the, into the hot box. You know, we, the digital divide is significant for... Um, black and brown communities as well as homeless communities, making sure that people have access to, you know, computers and Wi-Fi and information, particularly during COVID, it's been really important so that they, 
get accurate information or they're looking for employment and working on workforce development skills and they can apply for jobs. And so I, I could go on and on about our support services and how they're designed <coughs> usually by our residents themselves and by what they determine their priority needs are. Mm-hmm. Well, I will say it is a unique approach to start with the residents and kind of work your way back and build the development around their needs. I hadn't heard that before, even with other supportive housing developments that we've featured. Um, so I definitely think that is unique. There's a couple of points too that I want to clarify, I guess, with um, you know, what you guys are able to deliver on site and that connection to the financing. And I guess really drive home the point that um, you guys take it beyond the minimum requirements that are necessary to obtain these sort of financings. So um, I guess two questions. I want to make the differentiation on tribal specific money. Um, from what I'm understanding, that can only be used or is primarily used on reservation. Um, and by you guys accessing more mainstream housing sources, I know that their requirements are not as particular to this individual group of people. So is this just driven by, I guess, y'all's expertise and your experience with affordable housing development? Um, you know, like what pushes you to take it a step beyond the requirements that are necessary to just secure funding and make these type of projects possible? So Joe, a couple of things come to mind. I'll start, but I'm quickly turn it over to you. For for, from the beginning, we're a community development organization. We're 50 years old, and we were there to serve the community, not just to be a housing. Matter of fact, we weren't a housing provider. We were a healthcare provider. And then we expanded listening to our service recipients. Always they said, you know, uh, we can't have good health. We can't stay sober without, you know, uh, healthy housing, you know, housing that provides us the support that we need. And so we began building housing as an outgrowth of being a community development organization serving this cultural community. So I don't think we ever thought of ourselves as a one service or a one siloed or a one funded. And so when we approach a housing community, it's not about them being in an apartment or building a facility. It's about how are we going to improve the health care, the housing stability, the employment, the highest reconnecting with families. And how, how are we going to really improve the lives of our residents? The other thing I'd say is that Phoenix is probably the second largest urban Indian population in the country. There's over around 120,000 Native Americans living in Phoenix. And it's much larger than there's 570-some federally recognized tribes, many that are very, very small. And even if you compared the urban Indian population here in Phoenix, we'd be one of the larger tribes, you know, uh, with the number of people that we have here. So we have a growing community. When I, when we opened, there were only about 10,000 Native people, and now there's 120,000. So as Joe and I have been working together in the past 20 years, there's been no end to saying, is the need here? Um, there's uh, Native people make up about 2.5% of the county population and almost 7 to 8% of the homeless population. And um, uh, on the affordable housing side, uh, you know, they're one of the highest, uh, lowest uh, income ratios, too. So, there, you know, there just wasn't ever an end to the, uh, the need for or the demand for, um, for housing. And so, um, yeah, what do you want to add to that, Joe? 
Well, I think you make an important point about the, you know, the growth of the urban Native American population and, and how disproportionate it is from a homeless standpoint. I think it's probably important to note that it's also a higher proportion um, of Native veterans that, that serve the armed forces as well compared to the general population. Um, I, I think Didi brings up a great point too. It, you know, we're, as a real estate guy who loves numbers and buildings and bricks and mortar, we are far from a real estate company. We are a behavioral health community development agency and affordable housing is just, it's another program and service that we provide. And it grew, like Didi said, um, based on the needs of our clients. Um, that being said, you know, we, we manage all of our own real estate development in-house. Um, we are also our own property managers. We are our own service providers. We, we obviously have a highly sophisticated um, finance and development team that, that manages this through a very qualified board of directors that understands the programs and services and really how real estate finances and works. But all that being said, you know, once a week, I have to sit across the table from our property manager or our service provider and hear about everything that doesn't work, um, which is good. I mean, it, it humbles you every week, and, but it teaches you that, the, you know, we can always learn on the next project going forward. And, you know, 20, 20 years of doing this with ED and almost probably 25 communities and projects later, I think we're still learning. And, um, you know, we, uh, we take that approach on every single new initiative or, or new community that we plan to develop um, really on every project. I mean, you guys make great points. And I think one of the things I really want our audience to hear and something I've even learned throughout this series is that when you think of HUD bash and you think of the vouchers especially geared towards veterans exiting homelessness there is that supportive element already built in um but these developments that are offering supportive housing and supportive services on site really just like take it a step further and can offer so much more than um just the, maybe the the medical services that would come with the traditional voucher um so I definitely think it's been amazing. I, I want to highlight, I guess, anything that other developers hearing this episode or anybody in our network hearing this episode can take away from y'all's experience with this property and kind of apply to their developments um, moving forward. Like you were talking about some of the lessons you've learned or, you know, feedback. Yeah, sure. Oh, yeah. Don't try to build something during COVID. Um, <laughs> I think that's <laughs> Yeah. I, I was I was going to say that um, I really think that, you know, we've decided not to do scattered site housing, that we do project-based housing. Uh, we have a, in our architectural design, we have this single point of entry with 24-7 staff. So when you're servicing people, um, you know, so we, we're in relationship with our residents. You know, we're not a property manager. We're in relationship. And if we don't see somebody for 24 hours, um, there might be a resident that comes to us and we do a wellness check, you know, if, if we really are concerned about somebody. And I just think that uh, what I've heard from some of the 
the um, veteran case managers, because we have vast vouchers at our other projects, is that they send some of their most challenging people that they're concerned about in terms of really keeping them. Uh, they might have uh, not been successful in other housing placements and making uh, one of our communities their home and really the level of support where we work together hand-in-hand hand with the, with the uh, veteran case managers, the VASH case managers, and our housing case managers, they're getting uh, really good results. So, I've, I've, uh, you know, I've just anecdotally heard the... Our staff say that, that the, the VA is sending us, you know, some of the, the people that have not been successful in other environments because we have that such a strong relationship and it's project-based and we have 24-7 staff and we're in relationship with our residents and we can buy, provide that extra level of support. Right. Is there anything you wanted to add to that, Joe? If not, I have one... Uh, Last question, I guess, to wrap up this interview. It's been great. Uh, no, I mean, I'd just say ditto with whatever. I mean, it's just to me, whenever we, we, and we do a lot of tours and we do a lot of interviews um, on stuff like this, you know, Didi, Didi gets us out there, but it's, it's always such a sense of community to me. Um, you know, even when we're walking a property 10 years after we finished it, you know, and I, I lived it every day for a year and a half or two years straight. And then you kind of just move on to the next one and you remember the highlights. Um, you tend not to remember the bad things so much because it's real estate, always bad stuff happens. You gotta work your way through it. But it's such a sense of community on every property that we tour, so. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, that is that transitions perfectly to the question I kind of want to wrap up on is obviously there are obstacles to creating this type of development and you go through sometimes years lining up financing and getting approvals and you know getting to the points where you can actually even begin um, so is there anything from y'all's perspective that can be done on a local state county federal level to make it easier to complete projects of this um, caliber I guess in other communities Jody, well, why don't you start on the real on the development side? Go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, from a financing real estate development perspective, what makes Dunlap Point work? Um, frankly, are the vouchers, the you know the VASH vouchers, um, as well as the PBB vouchers through the City of Phoenix. That's what anchors the long-term financial sustainability. So, you know, the more vouchers that we can get into our respective communities. I think obviously the more types of supportive housing like this can be developed um, and operated by, you know, support organizations like Native American Connections. I think developers as a whole, no matter what part of the country they're operating from, you know, we are designed to face challenges and figure them out. I mean, it's, you know, it's not like Apollo 13 challenges because it's not that, it's not that but, but there's a way for us to figure out the, the, the challenges that face us. If it's zoning, if it's NIMBYism, if it's financing, you know, we can make that stuff work. It's the how do we sustain long-term operations. Um, it's more than just, you know, you build it, they will come. We, we've got to, we got to make sure that we're proud to 
um, to tour it. We're, we're proud to for our residents to live in it, for our staff to, to work there. Um, I think that's the most important piece. And that's honestly the part that we always struggle with when we, when we develop permanent supportive housing communities is the long-term financial sustainability. So I'll just I'll just add that not not only on the financing side but on the operation side we have a really strong relationship. It does take uh, with the state, with the Department of Housing, and with the City of Phoenix, where almost all of our projects are located, and even with the county. That you know we work the um, political relationships, the funding relationships. Uh, we create partnerships with the, both the city, state, and county. Um, we've been, uh, we actively participate in the HUD continuum of care. Um, you know, we're, we're seen as one of the continuum of housing providers and our voice is at the table. And, um, you know, I think that's really important and sometimes we leave that out. We always say if a project has political will, we'll get it done somehow. Is there somebody behind us pushing, helping to remove those barriers that Joe's working in, whether they're zoning or, you know, some kind of a, you know, an approval or something, uh, a gap in financing? And so I think that's really important. And on this, I'm just going to go back to the service side too. Native American Connections has invested in people. So whether you've been homeless before, whether you've been in the criminal justice system, whether you've been, uh, you know, opioid addicted or had problems with alcohol, uh, we're not going to look at the past person's behavior. We have about 200 employees, and we're hiring and training and developing and promoting, uh, looking at people's future potential and not their past, you know, problems. So we just opened a property this uh, past couple weeks in addition to one of our, it's now 124 units called Stepping Stone. And I was recognizing it's our largest site, 122 units. The supervisor of the services, his name is Sam, and by his permission, he was a client of ours 10 years ago, had a very difficult life. He's Hopi. Uh, Native American man, and now he's worked his way up through our organization, and he's the supervisor of about 10 staff that are working there providing support services. And the property manager, LITAC property manager, which is complicated with a multitude of vouchers, also a Native American man who is involved in the criminal justice system and um, utilized every level of our services. Both of them used our housing as well as our behavioral health recovery services. And 10 years later, he's the property manager and the supervisor of our services. And so our people on the site, running our site, they've been there. They've lived it. They're people with lived experience. And so it's much more than just uh, making sure that their Section 8 voucher is and their annual certification is done and um, they, they're, they're living it right along with our residents. And so we've really invested in the people that we also serve. I think that's an important point. Right. Well, I think that's, you guys have made so many great points. And I think, uh, just something I want our less our listeners to take moving forward is that it really starts with people. Like we've talked a lot about the financing. We've talked a lot about the pri the process it takes to get developments like this passed. 
but it really comes down to like the sense of community and having multiple things as well as housing. So um, it's not as simple as just putting somebody in an apartment and telling them kind of good luck. It, it's so much more than that. And this project's such a great example of that. Um, I, I can't think of any other points or questions I had. I think it's been an amazing interview. Um, I really, the project's inspiring. I can't wait to share it with our audience. It's just, it's hitting so many points that we've been discussing more and more, like paying attention to people with lived experience, you know, um, the the multiple layers of support that are necessary to remain successful. And yeah, it's just been an example all around for a lot of things we've been discussing as an organization recently. So I appreciate it. I appreciate the interview and thank you guys for taking time out to talk to us. Absolutely. Our pleasure. We, we enjoy people learning about the work that we do here. Yeah, absolutely. I We will share with you guys whenever we get everything um, put out. And um, we do send out like a one-pager for them to go to your websites and everything to kind of see a little bit more and, you know, for them to get involved in, in socials and kind of connect with us and do their own research to learn more about the property. So um, just look out for that. But other than that, thank you guys so much and hope you guys have a great weekend. And happy Halloween. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh -huh. Bye bye. Have a good weekend. Bye.